0: It's gone. verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. In the beginning of this letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus are packed some of the most amazing, majestic words that describe God's purpose of salvation for his people. God's purpose of his work in this world and uh, packed into this are just statement after statement that in and of themselves, one phrase in here, the forgiveness of sins or the riches of his grace. We could spend uh, so much time just diving in and considering that one phrase because Packed into what is said here are incredible statements about God's grace, God's love, God's purpose for his people from before the foundation of the world and how he has worked with mighty power in accordance with his will to bring that purpose to pass in the lives of his people and in his creation. And how all of these things God is working together towards an appointed purpose to unite all things in heaven and earth together in Christ. This is a vision that goes beyond our mind's ability to comprehend or grasp the fullness of it. But here it is declared to us in this letter to the Ephesians, which we have begun to read here today. Now, last month, when I uh, introduced this letter, we looked in the book of Acts, how it describes some of the events that led to the foundation of the church at Ephesus, who Paul now writes to. But uh, in considering who Paul is writing to, let's look here at this first verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful In Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, let us consider the recipients, the audience for whom this letter is intended. We've considered the Ephesians and their unique experiences that they experienced about 2,000 years ago. How the word of God preached through the Apostle Paul and other ministers came to them, and they heard the good news about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They heard the good news about his sacrifice for the accomplishment of forgiveness of sins. They heard the good news about how he had overcome death by rising from the grave on the third day. They heard that good news, and many there in Ephesus believed that message. And then they were baptized and they were united together in a community of faithful believers serving their Lord. And it talks about how they were brought to repentance, how they confessed their sins and they turned from them and they turned towards God. And it talked about how God worked mightily in that community so that the word of God spread so that the name of Jesus was glorified. And so we can see that he says he writes this to the saints, which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And in doing so, in, in, in a statement like this, uh, this construction of a phrase or sentence is very common in Hebrew writing. And it's common for someone like Paul here writing uh, as a Hebrew thinker trained in the Hebrew language and manner of speaking this idea of a parallelism. You have these two statements that build upon each other and are uh, adding emphasis and facets of meaning to what is said, to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then in the way that this letter is written, I think it is evident, abundantly evident, that this letter is intended for Believers in Jesus Christ in every age and place throughout the history of God's work in this world. And uh, so just considering that first phrase, though, to the saints which are at Ephesus. We, uh, in modern times, people in our culture and other cultures might have a certain conception of the word saint that doesn't really match what Paul is saying here. Sometimes people today, they use the word saint um, to describe, they might use it to say, oh, you're a saint, like you're a particularly good person. Uh, Or people will use it in a more official kind of sense. A saint is one of those very uh, particular, special people who did such mighty works in the history of of uh, Christianity, that they have this elevated status above all others, like Saint Paul or Saint Peter, people that had a a, uh, a role in the history of the uh, work of God's kingdom that separates them off in our minds from all the other body of believers. But neither one of those meanings is how Paul is using the term saints when he writes to the saints which are at Ephesus. What he means is the literal meaning of this word saints is holy ones, holy ones. And the holy ones to be holy means to be dedicated to a sacred purpose set apart to the service of divine holy things. Uh, So, for example, we might liken it to under the old covenant. They had the temple service. And you've probably at least heard something about how that worked. There were sacrifices. uh, There was a temple that was built and there were people like the Levites and the priests who were separated from the total community of people to a special role in the service of the temple. Maybe it was to offer the sacrifices. Maybe it was to burn incense in the temple. And there was also in the temple, there were all these different vessels Uh, Maybe they were holding the oil or the water or different things. There were uh, vessels that were things. There were carvings. There were tapestries that were set up to form the walls of uh, of the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies of the temple. There were various, all these different furnishings. These furnishings, these implements of the temple were considered holy. Now, if you had a vessel, imagine a bowl, for example. And you were to look at that vessel uh, in its physical appearance and construction, it may have not been that different from any other bowl. So what made it a holy bowl? What made it a sacred bowl was that it was specifically set apart and dedicated to a sacred purpose that was the service of God in the temple. And so when the uh, believers in the New Testament community in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are called saints or holy ones, it is because we are separated, dedicated to a holy service of God. Here's what one uh, commentator said about this uh, in my study. I came across this. He said the word saints Haggai in Greek means those who are holy or those who are devoted or consecrated to God. The radical idea of the word is what is separated from a common to a sacred use and answers to the Hebrew word kadosh. It is applied to anything that is set apart to the service of God, to the temple, to the sacrifices. To the utensils about the temple, to the garments, etc., of the priests, and to the priests themselves. It was applied to the Jews as a people separated from other nations and devoted or consecrated to God, while other nations were devoted to the service of idols. It is also applied to Christians as being a people devoted or set apart to the service of God. The radical idea then, as applied to Christians, is that they are separated from other men and other objects and pursuits and consecrated to the service of God. This is the special characteristic of the saints. So that is right from the beginning of this letter, right from the start. Paul is saying to those he's writing to, you have a special and a sacred calling as being the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as being those who have come to a knowledge of Jesus, of who he is, a personal, intimate knowledge of God, you are called to a special and a sacred purpose. You are saints, and that's who he writes to. And then the rest of the letter will unfold Facet after facet after facet of what it means to be part of that community that God has called out to his service. Uh, building on and fulfilling and, and uh, bringing to, to pass everything that was foreshadowed by the old covenant community, where you had the nation of Israel separated. And one of the things that was said about them. Uh, which is incidentally also said about the believers in the new covenant times, is that he said, you are a holy priesthood. You You are a kingdom of priests. The priests were those that were separated off from the rest of the people dedicated to administer God's blessings to the whole community. And Israel as a nation had that special role and that special calling for all the world. See, God never called them off and separated them off simply because God just said, you know, you have all the nations of this whole world and I want to have a people. You know, all those other nations, they're going to worship their gods, but I want to have my own people. I want to have this one little group of people separated off from everyone else so that they can serve me and I can be pleased with what they're doing. And leave the rest of the world to to itself. That was never the purpose for which God called Israel. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God created all peoples across this whole world that he has created. He is the God of all creation. And, And throughout the Old Testament, you see this again and again and again. Think about the story of Jonah, if you remember that. Jonah, a prophet... From Israel, and God sends him not to an, a city in Israel, he sends him to Nineveh to call them to repentance. And right from the start of that story, there is proof that Nineveh, a Gentile city, belongs to God. God cares about the people there enough to send them a prophet and call them to repentance and ultimately have mercy upon them. So Israel was not separated off so that they would be the exclusive recipients of God's blessings, but instead so that they would fulfill God's purpose that he told Abraham way before that in you all the families of the earth would be blessed. As God's vision and purpose for the world is a grand earth-encompassing vision of redemption and restoration and that is the purpose to which he calls his people and I will tell you about Israel's fulfillment of that only happened only came to its fruition in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ apart from that they always fell short of the glory of their calling but in Christ We, as the community of God's people in Christ, are able to fulfill the calling for which God set a part of people, of which we today are not some entirely different thing, but the continuation and the fulfillment of In, in and through Christ. And as we see as this passage unfolds, that is the only way that these blessings are find their realization it's the only way that they come into being in Christ in Christ in Christ it says it again and again and again and what is the magnitude of the blessings that God has in store well they are limitless they expand to the fullest of how one can be blessed he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All spiritual blessings. That's what the uh, recipients of this letter are heirs of all spiritual blessings. And again, just uh, dwelling on it a little bit more, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and then he goes on in this parallel statement to the faithful. In Christ Jesus, to the faithful, those that are full of faith in Jesus Christ, those that are believers in Jesus Christ, that's who the saints are. Not some uh, s- separate, small group of believers that particularly ascend un- uh, unto a particularly important place, but all believers in Jesus Christ, those that are full of faith, the faithful. In Christ Jesus are the ones to whom everything else that we're going to read are directed at. You and me and all believers in Jesus Christ all across the world in our time and in every age before and to come. These these words are directed at. And we have to understand that we have to understand who this is directed at. Otherwise, everything else that we're going to read won't really make sense uh, if we can't put it in a context of who are these statements about predestinated, chosen, uh, called, adopted as children. This is neither something that is just about um, some exclusive group of subset of of believers, nor is this about the world in general, but it is about. Those that are called to be saints, those that are the faithful in Christ Jesus, the disciples and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, is to whom these statements are directed. With that in mind, uh, we we can go on and we can see in verse four and five, it speaks about God's purpose of redemption, blessing, salvation, all these things is not something that is just... Um, happening or being figured out after the fact in that time or in our time but is something that God has purposed from before he even created the world. And that is both true of us as a community God's purpose for us as a community is fulfilling a divine purpose that God had before he even made the world and it's also true of each of you Personally, that God's plan for you, God's knowledge of you, His love of you, His purpose to adopt you and make you part of His family is something that God knew, purposed, and intended before you were even born. Amen. Yes. In fact, before He even made the world, mm-hmm. God knew you, He had you in mind. Wow. I think of that Psalm in, in the Old Testament. that that speaks about how God uh, knew us when we were even being formed in the womb he knew all of our parts he knew everything about us he searches me he knows me well God knew you and he knew his purpose in you and for you before you knew about it and experienced it before you were born and before he even created the world and that's that's Uh, Hard, maybe impossible for us to wrap our minds around or understand. But if you understand that God's purpose for your life is not something that's being uh, figured out as you go, but that God has a destiny in store for you that that is before you were even made, then that can give comfort, encouragement, and hope through the twists and turns of this life. As we experience the trials, the griefs, and the sorrows, as we experience the hopes and the opportunities that unfold in life, we can neither be destroyed by despair or lifted up in pride when we realize that we are in God's hands. And he has your life and your destiny in his hands. According, it says, as he hath chosen us in him, Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I can't unpack everything that it means when it says chosen us in him. But I want to at least point out. Saying God not only chose you. Not not just that he made a selection of you. But that he chose you in him, in Christ. That all of the blessings that we are talking about, reading about, thinking about, whether it's the forgiveness of our sins, whether it's being included in an inheritance of unspeakable riches and majesty that all of God's people have are partakers of. Those are things that all those blessings are mediated to us through Jesus Christ. And we know that we know that it's not by our works it's not something that we've earned we know that it's by grace Amen. and it's only received mediated to us through Jesus Christ and through us being united as one in him we are able and made able and made appropriate to receive and experience blessings that would not be suitable for us, of ourselves, in and of ourselves. We would not deserve them. We would not be uh, holy enough to be able to enjoy them and receive them. But in Christ, we are made joint heirs of unspeakable, spiritual, abounding riches. That we should be, it says, holy and without blame before him in love. And so we've talked a little bit about what it means to be holy, to be set apart, to be sacred, to be dedicated to God's service. Well, we, in our sinful flesh, are not holy. We need to be made holy. And this is how this is in God's purpose that we would be holy and without blame. Without blame. That, that God would have nothing to look at you and say, you're guilty. You're blameworthy for this. We know that by nature that we're guilty. We know that we're, we violated God's law. We violated his commandments. We have not fulfilled the most basic principles of the law to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We have not lived up to that. We have missed the mark. We have fallen short. We have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what it says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, God has created you and me and this whole creation. God has created it for a glorious purpose. He made it beautiful, harmonious, like a... A, every part of it, every creature that was made, every uh, material, every tree and, 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 and grass and land and ocean and mountain. Mankind itself, male and female, God created all of it to sing the praises of his glory in a harmonious symphony of praise that would, that would be overflowing with beauty and majesty and glory. And so when we sin, it's not just about, you know, sinning. It's not just about doing a bad thing. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We fail in our sin to live up to that glorious purpose for which God has made us. And man's sin brought the creation into a state of corruption. Corruption. Messed everything up. And Jesus came and he came into this world to set right what was made wrong. To set it right in your heart. To set it right in our community. To set it right in the creation of a, as a whole. And God's working on every level to bring about that purpose to the ultimate aim and the ultimate end that we see alluded to and stated here in the dispensation of the fullness of times it says that he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth. That God's going to unite heaven and earth. That his rule, his reign over all things is going to Uh, encompass everything and be a glorious and righteous reign that he creates a new heaven and a new earth it says wherein dwelleth righteousness this is the purpose that is talking about here and it says uh, that he has predestinated us unto the adoption of children so I talked about a destiny that God has for for his people at the heart of God's destiny is that He would make a family. He would make a new family. And, and, and sinners like you and I, though uh, by nature, it would say later, by nature, we're children of wrath, even as others, yet He would purpose to adopt us into His family and make a family. One with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ as our elder brother, as the firstborn, the one that would have the preeminence, and we would be included in that family. And that family is a spiritual reality. But don't mistake that for something that is not literal and not experienced by you and I on a day-to-day basis as we live and breathe And walk and talk in the community of faith. Because that family that we are adopted to. Is not just something that we will experience in the hereafter. But it's something that we can and will experience here and now. I think about a statement that Jesus once made. To his disciples. And he talked often about the cost of following him, he says, "If anyone would come after me, he said, let him take up his cross and follow me." He says he that would save his life shall lose it, but he that would lose his life for my sake shall shall gain, shall gain it. And so he spoke in many places that to follow Jesus in this life means taking up a cross. It means suffering. It means dying, dying to self. Dying to our own desires. And if you. Are following Jesus Christ. As his disciple. You know. That that places. Demands and obligations on your life. On a daily basis. Not ones that are a grievous burden. That are ultimately a joy. But it means that you take. Your own desires. And you lay them down. Before God. You submit them to him. You. You you deny yourself take up your cross and follow him and sometimes that means suffering for many disciples in the ages it has meant martyrdom it has meant suffering it has meant loss well one of the losses that in that time and today and every time in between in some places in the world that disciples of Jesus Christ experience is that of the loss of family and friends Because of their, I'm talking about because of their following of Jesus Christ. And I've known both extremes in friends and people I've known. I've known people that in following Jesus Christ, they had the most supportive, loving family that encouraged them in their discipleship of Jesus. That supported them, upheld them, prayed for them, and were delighted When they followed Jesus, when they were baptized, when they joined the church, when they served him, and they supported it every step of the way. And some of us, some of you, have very supportive families and friends in your discipleship of Jesus Christ. And then I've known others that because of their following Jesus Christ, they were uh, rejected by their families. They were rejected despised by their family. Sometimes they lost relationships over it. And and then I've heard of other cases in the more extreme senses where there are places in the world where to follow Jesus means to be utterly disowned and shunned by your family. Sometimes in some communities, even it means being martyred by your own community. And so... Jesus says to those disciples, he says, anyone who has left father or mother or brother or sister to follow me shall receive a hundredfold in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Notice what he says there. What he's saying is it's not just some spiritualization of of something. Something, I believe he means it quite literally. He says, those that follow Jesus, you know, some of you are going to be hated by your own family. In that age, some of you, you're going to be cast out of the synagogue. They're going to want nothing to do with it. Your own mother, your own father, they may disown you for following me. But you will receive a hundredfold. A hundred mothers, a hundred fathers, a hundred brothers, a hundred sisters in this age. And he's talking about how the be- believers in Jesus Christ are brought and made part of a community where we are a family, Amen. where the bonds of that family transcend even those natural bonds of blood. Because it is a family relationship which extends beyond earth, even into heaven itself. That that family relationships cannot be broken even by death. Because they are held together in firmness by a purpose of God and in the person of Jesus Christ. In a way that transcends even the bounds of heaven and earth. He says, you are predestinated. We are predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And that kind of statement is is again and again throughout here. The good pleasure of his will after the counsel of his own will. According to the riches of his grace, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. God is pleased to work these things out according to his plan. And there are certain things about God. You know, one question that you, you can ask it, but uh, we're not always going to get an answer of why does God do things the way that he does? You know, why did God choose you? Because he loved you. Why did God love you? At some point, you just have to step back and realize that the ways of God are past finding out. That doesn't mean God hasn't revealed much to us. There are things that God has revealed to us, and we need to be obedient to those things and not shut our eyes to them. But when you're talking about why God does what God does... He does it because it pleases him. That's right. He does it because that is in line and consistent with his character, with who he is. Mm-hmm. And so God is doing these things according to the riches of his grace. Why does he show grace? Because he is gracious in his being. That is his attribute. That is how he is. He loves because he is love. Because he encompasses all that there is about the nature of what love is. And on the other side of that, we even understand the concept of love. We even have, have the concept in existence. Because God is love. Otherwise, we would know nothing of love. We wouldn't be talking about it, thinking about it, or have a word for it. Because we know what love is and we love love. Because he first loved us. So it comes from him. And and so we see that these blessings that we have. uh, Verse 7, for example. In whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. One of the blessed announcements. As the gospel is proclaimed. Is that God forgives sins. John the Baptist came preaching. Preparing the way for Christ. And he said repent. For the kingdom of God. Is at hand. Repent. And you know sometimes. We, we get it all backwards. We hear a call to repentance. And we think that that. That's a harsh message. Re, re, calling to repent. We think You know, I use Nineveh as an example before. It might seem that way on the surface. God tells Jonah, Jonah, go to Nineveh and say in 40 days, I'm going to destroy this city for its wickedness. Wow, that seems like a harsh message. And Jonah didn't want to go. And it doesn't even tell us at the beginning of the book why he didn't want to go. But we find out the irony of that book and the irony of us thinking that that is such a harsh message that God has for Nineveh. I'm going to destroy you for your wickedness in 40 days. The reason Jonah didn't want to go is because he did not like the Ninevites. Maybe this is an oversimplification of it. He did not like the Ninevites and he knew God was merciful and he did not want to see them receive God's mercy. See, that seems like a harsh message. Repent. You're going to, not, he doesn't even tell them to repent. He just says, God is going to destroy you in 40 days for your wickedness. That seems like a really harsh message. But you know what? God wouldn't even send a prophet to them if he didn't care about their well-being. God cared. It's emphasized so much. God cared so much. God even cared about the cattle in Nineveh. God cares about his creation and God, God, uh, he knew that, you know, God probably knew their sin was going to destroy them and the injustice was going to destroy people that he cared about. So he sends a prophet because he is merciful. And so so when God says repent, turn from your sin, that is the overflowing abundance of God's mercy. It says, one, that God desires for you in your life something better than the wages of sin, which is death, which is devastation of your life. And death itself is the wages of sin. So God desires something better. And it means that God is a God that gives second chances, if we can put it that way. God is a God of a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance or a hundredth chance because when he calls to repent it's because God is a God who is ready not reluctantly but abundantly ready to receive sinners who repent and that is emphasized to us again and again it says there is rejoicing in heaven in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents that is that God is rejoicing When a sinner repents and turns back to him and God delights to forgive sins. And so he says, we have received forgiveness of sins and we have received those forgiveness of sins and the abundance of these blessings. According to, it says, the riches of his grace. Every good thing that we have from God We have received as a gift, a free gift. Imagine, you know, when you give a gift to someone that you truly love and you're giving them the gift out of love, not because you feel like an obligation or or, you know, you know, they're expecting it. But think about when you've given somebody a gift that you just really wanted to give them because you love them. And then when they unwrap that gift and you saw the joy in their face. You felt joy. You might have felt more joy than they did. In fact, Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. And if you've ever given a gift like that, you know, in fact, yes, you probably felt more joy in giving the gift than even in any gift you've ever received. That's how God gives, except perfectly, without any mixture of any of the things of pride or or envy or reluctance that we might have. God gives and God delights to give. So the good gifts that God gives you to forgive your sins, to bless you with an inheritance. He gives with an overflowing abundance of joy and he delights to give you good things. He's not just gracious, gracious, but his grace is richness, the richness of his grace such that there is such an abundance of. That it will never run out or be depleted or lack anything that is needed to accomplish its purpose for which God has given it. These are the riches of grace that we can delight in today and always.